Please pray with me. Father, we come to you this morning knowing that we need your help to grasp and to put into practice what you desire for our lives. And so we ask that during this time, you would send your Holy Spirit to accomplish those things. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Today, we're going to talk about politics. You know, I've never understood, why do people get squeamish talking about politics in church? Just kidding. Well, I hope you're sufficiently nervous. This past week, a recall election took place. But perhaps not the recall you're thinking of. A recall election happens when voters are infuriated with their leader and want a new one. In Wisconsin last Tuesday, the third ever recall of a governor was voted on. Tempers flared, tears fell, mountains of money were spent. Many believe that recall will have profound implications on Wisconsin and possibly the country. But there was a different recall election that happened last week that I think will have a more profound impact on the world. The recall election I'm thinking of is the one that happened in our hearts, minds, and wills as it does every week. On the ballot were two candidates, God and a blank spot for a write-in candidate. We cast our votes for our leader, either God or someone else of our choosing. This recall was nothing new. It's been going on ever since the events recorded in 1 Samuel 8 took place. Up to that time, God had been the king of Israel. He appointed leaders such as Samuel to be his representatives, but God was the king. Then one day the people came to Samuel. They had organized They'd signed petitions, and they wanted change. They put Samuel and God on notice that they wanted a different king. They wanted a human king, like all the other nations around them. And ever since then, every day, every week, we have been having our own recall elections, deciding whether or not we want God to be our king or someone else. Today we're going to ask many questions. All those questions boil down to one big question. A question that determines the trajectory of our lives. Can I trust God? To place it in the present tense, do I trust God? If you're like me, the answer to that question is, Sometimes yes, and sometimes no. Here's what we're going to do for the remainder of our time this morning. We're going to do two things. Number one, we're going to ask, why did Israel want a different king? And why do you and I want different kings? And number two, we're going to ask, 
how can you and I trust God more often than we currently do? How can we increase our trust in him? Let's start with number one. Why did Israel want a different king? And why do you and I want different kings? At the beginning of 1 Samuel 8, we see a transfer of power take place. Samuel had been the judge, God's representative to Israel. Judges were military leaders, they were political leaders, and they were judicial leaders. But it was, a judgeship was not hereditary. It wasn't like a royal family or a royal dynasty where it was passed down the line in a given family. God would appoint judges as needed. But as Samuel retires, he breaks the pattern a little bit, and he appoints his sons to replace him as judges. It wasn't automatic, but for whatever reason, he appoints them. And verse 3 tells us it was awful. They took bribes. They perverted justice. They weren't the people you wanted an audience with if you needed justice. So the people organize, and they get a petition, and they take it to Samuel, and they say, your sons are awful. Appoint for us a king so we can be like the other nations. Samuel didn't have any problem with their assessment of his sons. He knew they were rotten. For all the good that Samuel did, it's not clear why he thought this was a wise decision to appoint his sons that he knew were so evil. He knew they were bad news. He could not argue with the people's assessment of the current leadership. But he knew that their desire to unseat God as king was bad news too. So what lie behind this desire? In verses 19 through 20, we see that the people wanted a king to be like other nations. To have a human who would govern them and someone to go out and fight their battles. We can only make educated guesses about why the Israelites wanted this thing, but I think we can make pretty good guesses because it seems to me our hearts and their hearts are pretty similar. So let's throw out a couple of those educated guesses. I suspect they wanted a human king because you can look at and touch a human king. I wonder if they wanted an intimidating sign of power. If I were a foreign leader visiting the White House and I walked into the White House, I would be impressed and maybe a little intimidated. The city of Washington, D.C. was designed and built with the intention of intimidating foreign visitors, foreign diplomats, foreign heads of state. I wonder if Israel wanted a display of power that conveyed certainty. I know that you and I like certainty. And our ancestors, like ourselves, at heart, are all residents of Missouri. The state motto of Missouri is, show me. If you want to tell me something, prove it. Show me that what you're talking about is real. We want physical, concrete proof that everything will be okay. Let's imagine that you have two options for your life. That you're given two options for how your needs can be provided for. Option one is, you can be given $10 million in the bank for you to manage however you decide the rest of your life. And option two is, you start with no money, no nothing, but just the promise from God that he will provide for you. But there's no plan of how he'll do it or when he'll do it, but just the promise that he will. 
If you're like me, the $10 million in the bank sounds like a much better plan. It's comforting to be able to look at it and know that it's there. But it's interesting that most of the time, God just gives promises and not always detailed plans. He doesn't always give compensation packages. He gives promises. And the things that makes it nerve-wracking sometimes is sometimes he waits till the clock is clicking down. It's almost a zero before he acts. I like certainty. Israel wanted certainty. And I wonder if that's part of the reason they wanted a king. Somebody who they could demand to know the plan. And if they didn't like the plan, they could lobby to change the plan. I can see this in my own prayer life. I often find it easier to tell God how I would like him to accomplish things than for me to simply pray that his kingdom would come into a situation. I much more like to pray that he would follow my plan because I think they're pretty good ones and I know you think your plans are pretty good ones. But how, how much easier is it for us to do that than to simply pray that his kingdom will come into whatever thing we're speaking of? And I often need to check my prayer life and and try and figure out how comfortable am I simply praying for God's kingdom and not praying for my own kingdom. At the core, I think the Israelites struggled with this and we struggled with this because like Adam and Eve and like Jesus and like all God's people before us, we hear our enemy, the serpent, Whispering into our ears. I hear him whispering, God doesn't really love you. He loves the good people, the perfect ones, the ones who do what he wants. But even if you do what he wants, you're just a pawn in his larger game. I hear the serpent whisper, Have you ever thought about how good God's love seems? It seems so good. It seems too good to be true because it is. Look around. Who loves you the way the God in the Bible described us? Nobody does. You need to look out for yourself. That love isn't real. You need a plan and you need to protect number one. Those, of course, aren't the words of God, but they're very alluring words and words that if we're honest with ourselves, I believe we hear very frequently. So if that's the case, how do we get to a place where we can set these other voices aside, where we can avoid the mistakes of our ancestors and increase our trust in God? That's question number two. And the best way I know is to go swimming, to go swimming in God's word by submersing ourselves in God's word. When you go swimming, you're surrounded by the water. When you open your eyes, you see the world through the water. The best way I know to increase our trust in God is to go swimming in his word. To make it our surroundings, our world. To have it be the world we see, and to have it be the lens through which we see the rest of the world. And if you swallow it, that's okay too. (laughs) Let's look again at 1 Samuel 8. The people make the request for a new king, and God tells Samuel in verse 7, he says to Samuel, hey, 
I don't want you to sweat this. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me as their king. And then God issues his word to his people. He describes in detail what will happen. And then he gives them a choice whether to listen to that word, whether to trust it, or to trust their own plans. And to encapsulate God's word, he basically tells them, your taxes are going to go through the roof. There's going to be a draft in which both your sons and your daughters are taken away to serve in the armies and palaces. You'll see less of your family. You'll have less stuff. It's not going to be as good as you think. So Samuel takes God's word to the people. And they have this choice. Do we trust God? Do we trust his word? Do we trust our own plans? They decide to trust their own plans. They literally say, no, you don't understand. You're wrong. No exclamation mark. This passage has fascinated me. Because for so many years, when I read the Bible, I thought God's kings were great. I thought, gosh, if there was a king that worshipped God and that God appointed, this must have been God's plan. But it turns out it wasn't his plan. And I can't always describe why he sometimes lets us do things that he knows will be bad for us, but he does. And in the same way, just like he came to our ancestors, he comes to us with his word, with his plan for our lives as individuals and and as a body. And he invites us to make a decision. Throughout history... Christians and non-Christians have had three responses to the Bible. The Bible is God's word is the most reliable revelation of God's ways that we have. One response has been just to ignore it. Just put it on the shelf and and forget about it. And that's the response that that non-Christians take. But Christians, I've seen and I know I've taken two different approaches to the Bible. One is to to read through the Bible and, and see the things that we appreciate and, and automatically latch onto and say, oh, this is great. And when we get to a difficult thing that we don't understand about loving our enemies or, or Jesus being the only way, things that we may not fully grasp, things that may be hard to comprehend, we can say, this is tough. I may not understand it all, but I'm going to place myself beneath God's word. I'm going to have it be the authority in my life. That's one approach. And the other approach is to to say, yeah, loving my neighbors. That sounds good to me. I agree with that. But then when I get to other parts that I don't agree, what's this about like not having sex until you're married? I don't know about that one. You know what? I think we should rip that one out. And we may not physically rip it out, but metaphorically. And for the record, this is the Oxford Guide to Philosophy. So, so don't get too worked up. Isn't it fascinating, that visceral reaction that you and I have when someone rips a physical page out of the Bible? It's fascinating. But I know that so often I do that in my life. In a way that's much more important than if somebody were to do it physically. That when I have a hard time understanding something, you and I have a choice. 
We can keep wrestling with it. There's times that we may have to keep wrestling with something. Or there's times when I clearly understand something, but I just don't want to do it. And so I kind of ignore it and just pretend it's not there. Like our ancestors, we have this choice. Are we going to trust God and his ways, even though we may not fully understand them? Or are we going to rip pages out? I think one of the things that that trips us up in this area is that we confuse the artificial stuff with the real stuff. Here's what I mean. There's this guy, it's a true story, who's starting a new diet. He wanted to lose some weight. And so first morning of the diet, he comes down to the fridge, he he puts a bagel in the toaster, he gets out his cream cheese like normal, except uh, there was a house guest staying with him, and the house guest had got the, the light cream cheese, the diet stuff. And so he wasn't used to this, and uh, he put some uh, on his bagel, and he took a bite, and it didn't taste very good. So he's like, I know I'm on a diet, but this is light cream cheese. I'm going to put on some more. So he put on a bunch more. It tasted worse. So on the second half, he doubled down. He put even more cream cheese, just slathered it on, and he ate it, and it wasn't very good at all. And, and his wife came down, and, and he said, hey, honey, can you tell... Can you tell Ashley to not get the light cream cheese anymore? And she's like, okay. And she went to the fridge, and she just started laughing. And he's like, what's going on? And she brought up this package and said, you almost ate a whole bar of Crisco. (laughs) Sometimes we consume the fake thing, and it tastes bad, but we think it's the real thing. And sometimes, you know, we interact with each other. We interact with other humans who imperfectly represent God's love to us. Who sometimes do a great job, but sometimes just leave us with this really sour taste. And the danger is, we confuse that fake version of God's love with the real thing of God's love. What if we dove back in to the real thing. What if we came, fake Bible, real Bible. What if we came back to the real Bible and took it at its word? What if we took the stuff at its word, both the stuff we don't understand, but also all the great stuff that God tells us about how much he loves us. What if we just took that at face value and went swimming in it And we captured our imaginations by that and forgot about all the fake stuff. At the beginning, we said that all this boils down to one big question Can I trust God? And even at a more foundational level than that, is another question Does God really love me? Does he really love me the way described in the Bible? That's the question our ancestors faced. Does he love me enough to take care of me when I just have his promises and when I don't have the detailed plan? And that's the question we face. On Tuesday morning and every other Tuesday morning, we'll wake up and it will be election day. We will have a choice 
how we will vote in this recall election that our heart pulls us towards. Who will you vote for? Who is your king? Let's pray. Father, I confess that that I have often been an imperfect representation of your love to others. I confess that I have confused the imperfect love that others have for me with your perfect love that you have for us. By your spirit, I ask that you would help us to take you at your word that we would know your good and perfect and providing love for us, and that we would trust you and your promises even when we don't have certainty, even when there aren't things we can see and touch. I ask that you would help us to go swimming in your word, to go swimming in, in your ways, to see the world through your word, through your promises, and through your character. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.